Hey, we want to take a moment. I just want to welcome everybody from Midtown, North Cobb, Hamilton Mill. Everybody's online today watching from this particular campus and all of our online viewers. We've got people from all over the world. So let's welcome everybody that's watching this service right now. Amen. So Colleen and I just got back from a, a really cool trip. We were down in Jupiter, Florida with some friends of ours who... Um, my mentor, spiritual father, John Maxwell, and then another pastor who I'm, I'm good friends with out of Birmingham, has the second largest church in America. And we were just talking about Easter. We're talking about what's coming next weekend. Yeah, how many of you know that next weekend is the Super Bowl of Christianity? <laughs> it, it is. It's more important than the Super Bowl, the, the physical Super Bowl. And more people get saved on that one weekend than any other weekend during the year. In the, in the normal churches. And our attendance is, always goes up. There'll be, every service will be full of people. And this, even this one o'clock service will be full. You'll see it's a full service at one o'clock into overflow. In fact, in 2019, which was right before COVID, which was the last time we actually had Easter without COVID, uh, we had 24,000 people in church that weekend. And, and it, was, it was probably the biggest attendance we'd ever had in a particular week, and that's in all of our campuses. So I'm talking to this pastor of this large church, and I, I said, how many do you expect to see this Easter? He said, we're gonna probably have about 110,000 on Easter Sunday, on the weekend, I should say. And I said, 110,000? Now, who would, have, who would have ever lived in the world where we thought in a church, one church with many campuses would have 110,000? That fills an arena, that fills the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. That, you understand, that's a huge church. And I said, how many people do you think will get saved? He said, based on numbers from last year, we're expecting about 10,000 people to come to Jesus on that particular weekend. 10,000 people. Now, when you start talking in those numbers, you, you have to understand those are not normal numbers in most churches. That's, that's an unusual move of God in a particular region. And 10,000 people is a giga church. There's only about 100 churches in America that even come close to having that people in their church. And we're talking about that's how many people get saved on a particular weekend. The most we've ever seen saved on Easter weekend at Victory was in 2007. How about that? That's 16 years ago. Uh, we, we rented the Gwinnett Arena. How many of you were there when we rented the Gwinnett Arena back in two, Just a few of you were 2007. And we took a risk. And we said, we're gonna to go to a neutral site because we believe we'll have more people from the world that don't know Jesus come than to come to the church building. And we packed out the arena and we had 2,100 people stand and receive Christ that particular one service, Easter service. We had 2,100 people stand and receive Christ. And that's the most we've ever seen. So I said, Lord, after I heard the 10,000 and thought, started thinking about 2,100, I said, we've got to believe God for 3,000 people this coming weekend. This coming weekend, next weekend, we gotta believe God for that. Johnson and the team have put together an amazing service. Each campus will have uh, live preaching, each will have live singing, everything will be live at each campus. There'll be no videos, and, and so it should be wonderful. I want you to be prepared, though, at all the campuses, be prepared, because this is not your normal crowd. These are people that are coming from the world that don't go to church normally. They come on Easter Sunday. So they don't act like Christians necessarily when they come to church. Amen. So you don't have your special seat and somebody takes it and you get upset. This is a, this is a, this is a time to bring people to Christ. Amen. So, so here's the thing. This is your charge. Before I even get preached, start preaching, this is your charge. I want you to take your prayer time this week and I want you to pray at least for two to three people that you personally or family to invite them to church this coming weekend. Because there's a pretty high percentage that if you get them in the doors, they're gonna come under the presence of God and if there's anything in them that wants God, they're going to get saved. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, there is nothing more important nor rewarding. There's only one number, there's only one number that counts in the world, really counts. And it's not how much money you have, and it's not how many friends you have on social media. The number one, there's only one number, how many people you lead to Christ. How many people we lead to Christ is the number one number in your life, amen? And unfortunately, many churches don't lead people to Christ, and you're going to, you're going to have that responsibility this week, so take that into consideration as you go through this week, that this is my moment. If I get them in the doors, this, there's a pretty good chance they'll give their hearts to Jesus, amen? All right, take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter five. We are 
finishing the, the series, the sermon series called Blessed. This is the last message on it. And uh, I told Johnson about halfway into this, this uh, series, uh, and I've been here since we started the church 33 years ago. So I've preached my, my share of series and sermons, thousands of sermons and, and a series. And I, and I said, Johnson, I, of all the things I've ever preached or been a part of in church, if I, I think I'm, I'm right in this and saying, this series, and I don't think the church understands it, I don't think you really understand this, but this series could be the most important series in our, in our history of our church. The, the series, because we're starting the Sermon on the Mount, this is, a, this is something the Lord spoke to Johnson about a few months ago. We're gonna stay in it for several months, and we've never done that. We've done a summer on the Sermon on the Mount, but not almost a whole year on it, where we did a deep dive into everything that Jesus said in that sermon. And everything in that Sermon on the Mount hinges on what we call the Beatitudes. It hinges on it. So I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna make a few statements. As I sat there with, this weekend preparing this message, I felt like the Lord said, to the, said these things to me. I've come to realize, first of all, that the Beatitudes are the express image of who Jesus is and how he thinks and functions in everyday life. If we wanna know who Jesus is, I did a series last summer called Be Like Jesus, and I really didn't have the full comprehension of it until now that the Beatitudes is being like Jesus. Second thing the Lord said to me is the Beatitudes build off one another in sequence. And this is very important for you guys to understand this in the church, that there is a sequence of how God lays it out in the Beatitudes that one builds on another, builds on another, builds on another. And if you're like many in the church where you don't go every weekend, they say the average Christian goes to church once every three weeks now, and you miss a sermon, you miss part of that sequence. And you won't have the completeness of the Beatitudes. So I want to highly recommend if you missed some of the teachings on the Beatitudes, go back online and watch them. I made sure I watched every one. If I wasn't here, I watched them and studied them as well. Studied them as well because these, there is a sequence and there's a purpose behind that sequence. Third thing is the Lord said the Beatitudes are the power source behind the entire revelation of the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, if you're gonna get what we're about to teach for the rest of the year, the Sermon on the Mount, you have to have the Beatitudes. You have to understand the Beatitudes. That's important. And then fourth thing, everything in the Beatitudes goes against our natural bent toward life. What we're teaching in the Beatitudes is not what you naturally do. It's not how you naturally function or naturally think. So there is a battle between your natural mind and the spiritual part of you. And the Bible says your natural mind is an enmity with God. It argues with God. It fights with God. How many of you have ever had an argument in your mind with God? And, and, and that's your natural mind. That's why you have to be more spiritually minded than naturally minded or you will succumb to the natural mind. And the Beatitudes will always go against your natural mind. Everything in the Beatitudes describes the essential differences between what a true Christian is versus a non-Christian. Now, I would say, if I gave a poll in most services, how many of you, let me just see, how many of you would consider yourself to be true Christians? Let me see your hands. I'm truly a Christian. I, I truly am a Christian. Okay, some of you are being very honest. You're not raising your hands. And I appreciate, no, I appreciate that because you know, okay, I'm, I'm not a real, truly a Christian. I, I'm coming to church, I'm trying to learn about it, but I haven't made a decision. And that, let me tell you something, I honor that and bless you for, say, for doing that. But some of you raised your hands and you're not a true Christian. And you, and you haven't figured it out yet. You, you, you think because you go to church and you believe in Jesus, I'm a true Christian. How many of you know there's a lot more to being a true Christian than going to church and, and, and believing in Jesus? The Bible says demons believe in Jesus and tremble. They're not Christians because they believe in Jesus. Are y'all all right out there? And so it's important to understand that a true Christian is, is, is a reflection of the Beatitudes. And then finally, the more like him, uh, we, we, the more like him we become, the more alike we are to everybody else who's not a Christian. Everybody else that's not a Christian, we're gonna become different from them. And I think this, in essence, is something that um, 
it takes a little getting used to being different, being different. And when we, when, sometimes when people think being different, that's a, that's a bad thing. But in this case, being different is a good thing. And being different is uncomfortable and it creates some is, issues, but, it, but it's important. And then finally, when the church is least like the world, it invariably attracts the attention of the world. The, the power of the church, if you read the New Testament, the power of the church, it was its most powerful when it was least like the world. It, it, it was completely different from the world. It didn't act like the world, didn't talk like the world, didn't think like the world. Because once you become a Christian, you're no longer of this world. You're no longer, you live in this world, but you're no longer of this. You're a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of the earth. The earth, if I could say it this way, the earth for a Christian is the closest thing to hell you'll ever experience. And for a non-Christian, the earth is the closest thing to heaven that you'll ever experience. But once you flip the, the thing, when you, when you, once you understand heaven, you understand that heaven is made only for people who are fully committed to Christ, who've given their hearts to Jesus. And, and it's important to understand that. All right, so let's go through the Beatitudes. Let's go through them real quick. I just wanna have a, a brief review so, so we can all be on the same page. I'm gonna read from Matthew chapter one, verse 11. I'm gonna just have a brief comment on each one. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, all right, set this tone. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the sermon of all sermons, the first real sermon of Jesus, where he sits down and teaches, and he's, and he's speaking some words. And he's about to unveil revelation about what it looks like in the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is like. And here's what he says. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the first thing he starts with, the foundational truth is, is understanding poverty in your spirit. What that means is not poor in finances. It means that you are emptying of yourself. You're, you're no longer about yourself. You are nothing without God. You've come to a place, and hopefully you have come to this place, because you can't be born again until you've come to this place, where you know you can't earn your way into heaven. You'll never be good enough to get into heaven, and there's nothing you can do to, 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 uh, to earn God's favor. God's favor comes when you empty yourself. He can't fill you till you get empty. And one of the challenges of Christianity is a lot of people come to Christ still full of themselves, and then they wanna add Christ onto themselves instead of emptying themselves and letting Christ take over. So many people try to add the experience of salvation on their life experiences instead of dying to self and letting, start, letting their life start over again. So first you have to be poor in spirit. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we've had a wonderful message, I thought one of the best messages we've ever had about mourning. And mourning is not just about being sorry, it's about allowing yourself to go to the depths of sorrow over your sin. Over your sin, allowing yourself. He said, I thought what Johnson said was really good. They used to sit for seven days with a cover over them and just mourn and allow themselves to feel the depth of who, who they, what they've done against God so that they can be healed. You understand that if you lose a loved one or you go through some sorrowful thing, if you don't mourn properly, it carries on with you the rest of your life. You have to mourn when, when, you, lost, when you lose something and what you're losing it, it, what you're giving up is your sin. You're sorrowful. It's godly sorrow produces repentance. Then, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek simply means teachable, correctable. I always say this uh, to, to pastors when I'm teaching them about their staff. I say, you never know what you have until you correct them. You never know who you, who you have, what kind of personality. I've found that I've, I've been around very sweet people, very nice people, and you correct them and demons come out of them. <laughs> No, seriously, I mean, you didn't know they existed until you corrected them. Demons can, can be very calm and subdued until you correct them. And, and all of a sudden, people start acting like the devil when you correct them. So meekness means I'm teachable, I'm humble, I'm correctable. Then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We're all hungry for something. We're all hungering, everyone in this room, everyone in all the campuses, you're hungry for something. Some are hungry for entertainment, 
Some are hungry for friends. Some are hungry for a relationship. Some are hungry for money. Some are hungry for entertainment, whatever it may be. But what he's saying is the true hunger that you have for God is for righteousness. I'm hungering to be right with God, to live in a right place with God. And he says, when I do that, then I'm going to be filled. Then he says, blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And we said the key to understanding that is understanding one, one statement that Jesus made at the last of his life. He's hanging on the cross. After he's been mocked, he's been scourged, he's been beaten, and now he's been hung on a cross and he's dying. And he says about the people that have done all this to them, to him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And we have a hard time computing that in our own life when people do wrong things to us. Well, they do know what they're doing. Ultimately, internally, they do not know what they're doing. They may, on the surface, know what they're doing, but ultimately, they don't understand the depth of what they're doing. And what, what God is saying is, if you're going to live the life that's gonna go against the grain, like everybody else, you're gonna to have to be merciful even when people don't act right before you. You're gonna to have to walk in a place of mercy. Then he says, blessed are those who pure in heart, for they shall see God. How many of you wanna see God? I like that. The closer you get to God is usually has to do with the condition of your heart. God, the Bible says, guard your heart with, with all diligence, for out of it flow all of your issues. Uh, every issue you have is a heart issue, and what you put into your heart is gonna ultimately come out of your heart. So he's saying the pure at heart, they will see God. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And I love that message last weekend. I think pa Pastor Mo brought it here at this campus. That was a great message. And basically what he's saying is, your life as a Christian is no longer to walk around being divisive and pointing out everything that's wrong with the world. Your, your role as a Christian now is to bring reconciliation, to reconcile people. If you're married, you should always work towards reconciling wrongs done in your marriage. If you're in a relationship where there's problems, you should be working towards reconciliation. And when you see problems in society, like racism or any kind of prejudice or anything like that going on or injustices, instead of spending your whole life spinning yourself up about what's wrong with everybody, posting things on social media, talking to other friends about what's wrong, you're trying to be the solution instead of echoing the problem. Did y'all hear what I just said? That's what a Christian does. It goes against the grain because the grain says, okay, let's just talk about all the problems. Let's just echo it all. But we're a peacemaker. We're trying to bring peace and, 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 and reconciliation. And then finally he says this, and this is the one I get to preach on. Thank you, Johnson. I appreciate this. He, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, I know that you didn't get up this afternoon and come to church, I wanna hear a message on persecution. That's not the message you wanna hear. But there's, a, there's again, remember, the Beatitudes are in a sequence. There's a sequence. If you read the carefully the Beatitudes, you'll notice the first half of the Beatitudes are about things internally, things that go on inside your heart, things that go on inside your soul. The second half of the Beatitudes are about Actions, things that take place as a result of this. You're a peacemaker. You're having mercy towards people, all these kinds of things. And then he's basically saying, now, if you're operating in all these beatitudes, this is what's going to be the result. This is what's going to come as a result of that. You're going to get persecuted. You're going to get persecuted not because you're bad, but because you're good. You're gonna get persecuted for righteousness sake. And then he kind of describes what it looks like. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Let's say that together. Rejoice and be glad. Now, I know that's exactly what you do when people do that to you. And you're doing right things. You're doing good things. You're not being persecuted for the wrong things. You're being persecuted for the right things. He's saying rejoice and be glad. And this is what he says. He says, because great is your reward where? Now see, that's the problem. The reward is not in the earth. The reward is in heaven. 
And it's so hard for us who live in a temporal earth to think about eternal things. It's so hard for us to think eternally because we're living in a temporal world that we think is just what life is all about, what happens here on the earth. But the reality is, you understand, this is a wisp of moment, a time that is just a small smidgen of time compared to eternity. How many of you understand that? And ultimately, we will live on the other side of eternity. We will live either in heaven or in hell. There is a hell and there is a heaven. And our goal is not only to make it to heaven, but to take as many people as we can with us to heaven. This is what the world doesn't get. They don't understand that we're trying to help them get into heaven. They think we're trying to persecute them for doing sinful things. That we're trying to make fun of them or trying to be angry with them. And that's, that's, the, that's the relationship that we have towards them. And the reality is the church's role is not to point out what's wrong with the earth. The church's role is to help them discover what's right in heaven. How to get there. And in order to get there, sometimes you go through this thing called persecution. And the persecution is designed, listen to me carefully, to steal, kill, and destroy your faith and your joy in Christ. It's, it's designed to stop you. How many of you know you have an enemy? His name is Satan. And he hates you. He hates you with a passion. And as soon as you start to serve God, he hates you even more. And he will send every kind of persecution he can if you're being effective in the kingdom of God. And you have to recognize that the most effective people are also the most persecuted people. So when you see somebody getting persecuted for righteousness sake, don't criticize them. Understand that that's part of being a Christian, learning to live in persecution. Now, when we think of persecution in America, here's what persecution is us to America. Somebody criticized us on social media. That's persecution. Somebody spoke ill to us, about us. They said something wrong about us. They mocked us. They did something wrong. Let me explain to you what real persecution is going on right now in the world. If you were living in China right now and you were calling yourself a true Christian, you were living for Christ, you could not openly worship God. If you openly worship God, you will be arrested and you will be taken to prison. Most of the pastors of the underground church have been tortured and put in prison. Now, a new law was passed just a year ago in China that if you're caught tithing to a church, the, the, the underground church, you're arrested and put in prison. Tithing. It's all we can do to get people to tip God on Sunday morning, and people are going to prison for tithing. Come on, somebody. And if you live in Iran, in Iran, if you are an openly converted Christian from the Muslim faith, from Islam, you are stoned to death in public or you're hung publicly. You're killed. The underground church, though, is growing at a pace that most people don't even recognize underground in Iran. And there is a Jesus revolution. If you've seen the movie, there is a Jesus revolution happening in Iran that Iran doesn't even know about. The people in Iran don't even, aren't even aware of that young people are getting saved. And here's how they're getting saved. They're getting visions and dreams from God supernaturally. They're coming to Christ and then they're starting underground churches. They're all through Iran, through Iraq, through Pakistan. Most of these countries, I'll give you a, a, an example of persecution, how, how it can work in the positive, all right? This happened in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. In North Vietnam, communist part of Vietnam, if you were a Christian, you were killed. Immediately, you were killed. And so there was this group of underground Christians in North Vietnam. They were kind of like in a bunker where they would hold their worship services. And the, these soldiers from North Vietnam found out about them and came into the, into the bunker with their guns to, to arrest them. And so they said, they gave the people a condition. They said, all right, all of you that are here that are not Christian, your faith is not in Christ, if you will acknowledge that your faith is not in Christ, we'll let you go. So a portion of the group raised their hand. I'm, I, I'm not a, I don't have faith in Christ. I don't, I don't believe in Jesus. So they let them go. And now all was left was the true Christians who were willing to die for their faith. And when they, when they let them go, as soon as they went out the door, the soldiers put down their guns and said, we're Christians too. We just wanted to go to church with real Christians. We just wanted to, we just wanted to worship with real Christians. 
Let me ask you a question. What would you have done? Would you have given your life for Christ? That's true persecution. That's true persecution. But in America, we have to learn that persecution is on the rise. It's on the rise. We're not dying for our faith in, in, in America right now, but we still are starting to see just a slow creeping in of persecution in every facet so that perhaps in your life, you are experiencing persecution. Now he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted, not for righteousness sake, not for being foolish in Christ. He didn't say, blessed are you for being a nut in the body of Christ. I, I, I literally... I know, I know that you're not like this. I know you're not. But we have some people in the body of Christ that think that by being crazy, that's, that's being a Christian. I was walking in the door one Sunday morning, and there was a lady standing right outside these doors right over here, dressed in the armor of God. She had a shield on. She had a, a armor on. She had things on her feet. She had a helmet on. She had a sword. And she was about to walk in our 11 o'clock service and worship God with us. And I said to her, I said, why are you dressed like that? Before she walked in, she goes, well, I'm just here to demonstrate the, that I am armed for the battle of the Lord, and I'm here to proclaim the trumpets of the Lord. And she starts going into this prophetic thing. And I said, not in our church, you're not. She said, you're just persecuting me. You're persecuting me. I, everywhere I go, I get persecuted. I said, that's not persecution. That's just correction for foolishness. I said, you're crazy. I said, now, if you want to come into our church, I told her that. I said, if you want to come into our church, you got to take all that off and just come in in regular clothes. Because if you come in like that, everybody's attention is going to go on you and get off the Lord. How many of you know that I, in some service, have you ever been in a service? This is so funny. Have you ever been in a service when somebody, you're preaching and somebody's like, amen, 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 Pastor. Yeah, go, say it, say it. You ever been in one of those services? And then somebody, usher, comes up, ma'am, would you mind, or sir, sir, could you just calm that down? Well, I'm just here praising the Lord. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me is you're acting crazy. We're not talking about persecuting somebody because they're acting crazy. Are you following me? Another lack of, uh, another kind of persecution is I'm being persecuted for my political stand, I've taken a political stand. I'm supporting so-and-so for the president, and, and, and people are persecuting me for this. That's not persecution for righteousness' sake. How many of you, if you've ever read the Bible, have you ever seen anywhere in the Bible where Jesus stands up and says, okay, we need to support this candidate? Have you seen that? Have you seen that where, okay, let's bring them up on the stage, put them before the church. Let's, now, we got to vote for this person because society is so bad that if this person gets in, he'll correct everything. Is, is a political person the Savior or is Jesus the Savior? Is the problem with society stemmed in politics or is it stemmed in sin? Where is the problem? Where is societal ill stemmed in? It's stemmed in sin. Now, it doesn't mean you don't support a candidate or you vote for somebody that agrees with your way of thinking, but they are not the savior. Come on, somebody. We lose more people in our church during an election year than any other year. We have more people get frustrated and angry because we won't promote this candidate or that candidate. We had Donald Trump connect, con contact us in the first election. Can I come to your church and sit in the say, No. We're not having anybody, because as soon as you bring a political candidate in our church, it polarizes the church. It makes people decide, am I a Democrat or am I a Republican? Jesus is not a Democrat or a Republican. And there's nowhere in the Bible where he says Christianity is all about politics. Christianity is about living a righteous life before people so that people can get saved. And the reason we have societal ills like we have, the reason the nation has become like it's become, is not because of politics, it's because the church has not become like Jesus. The church has become religious, it's not become like Jesus. So what we're trying to do is say, okay, what does it look like? And Jesus said it this way, this is what he says. In John chapter 15, in verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. In other words, if the world hates you, then you understand you're just like me. 
And he says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Then Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All right, so let me just give you how it might look in America. In America, persecution looks a little different. Again, we're not losing our life for our faith yet. That may come. In fact, the Bible says as we draw closer to Jesus, that is what will happen in the earth, that if you are a Christian and you have faith in Christ, you will have to stand and give, in, in some cases, lose your life for the cause of Christ. And I, I really feel like part of the responsibility of the church is to prepare people for that because we don't know when that time is coming. But the reality is, is we've got to learn how to deal with the little persecutions that we do have. Growing up as, as a Christian, I be, I, when, we, when I got saved, one of my first persecutions was from my own family. How many of you have ever been persecuted by your family for your faith? All right, so I announced to my grandma, I'll never, never forget this, the day I, a few days after I got saved, I came, saw my grandmother on my father's side. I said, I've, I've become a Christian. I'm gonna sell my business. I feel like the Lord told me to sell my business, to move to this particular part of the United States and help this little church get started. And here's what she said. She said, have you lost your mind? You're, you're being a fanatical Christian now. What are you talking about? Quitting your job, quitting your business and going to follow Jesus. I said, well, I said, first of all, I'm not losing my mind. I'm pretty sane. I said, but, but, but I really feel like God is saying this to me because, because this, is where I, this is my next step in life. She said, if you do that, don't you ever come back here again. I don't ever want to see you again. I don't ever want to talk to you again. You're no longer a part of this family. And I remember I had to drive away from her house thinking I might not ever see my grandmother again. Then when Colleen got saved, I led her to the Lord six months later, her father said to her, if you leave this faith, she was a Catholic at the time, if you leave this faith and go pursue this, this relationship with Jesus you're talking about, and if you go and follow this direction, you are no longer a part of our family, and in, and in fact, as far as I'm concerned, this is what she said, he said to my, my wife, you're dead. This is what he said, you're dead. And, and they didn't, her father and mother didn't speak to us for five years, didn't have anything to do with us for five years. Now, eventually, we had a grandchild, we had a daughter, and that, how many of you know grandchildren just break down the walls of all that adversity? And so we, we were fine now, but back then, we had to forsake that. And I remember reading through this scripture where Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 10. Here's what he says. In verse 34, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life, this is what, finding, this is what it means, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what he's saying is when you become a Christian, when you're truly becoming a Christian and you're starting to function in this, these beatitudes, which is gonna make you different, you're going to have relational challenges with people. How many of you found that out? You have relationship challenges with people. And some of those people, and it sounds almost cultish when you read it. In fact, they actually called Christianity in that day a sect, a cult because it was separating families. And here, what he's saying is, he says, in some cases, it will be some of your own household, your own family members. So sometimes you will discover that as you start to serve God, your greatest persecution will come from people you love dearly. They're people that are close to you. And, and what I've learned is over time, you're gonna have to learn that that's a part of being a Christian. 
That's a part of being a Christian. Now, it happens. Persecution happens at various different stages. It happens when you're a child. When, you, when a child starts to serve the Lord and they get to an age where they're in, with their teenage friends and they start to announce to their friends that they're a Christian, how many of you know persecution starts happening right away? I remember we were talking to our daughter when she got about 13 and we started having conversations and I said, Lauren, I said, now there's gonna come a time when you're gonna like boys. Do you like them now? She says, I don't like boys right now. I said, I said, well, you will. You will like boys. And I said, when you like boys, they're gonna put, some boys will put pressure on you to do things that are not good for you as a Christian. And I said, I wanna, I wanna get a covenant with you. We're gonna take you up to the mountains. We're gonna cut a covenant before God that you will stay pure and, and a virgin until the day you get married. Now, how many of you know that that is not normal? That's different than most kids most kids don't hear that from their parents. And if you never heard that from your parent, you're hearing it from me right now. Let me be your daddy. Who's your daddy? I'm your daddy right now. <laughs> Listen to me. And, and, and don't, don't get condemned if you've already lost your virginity. You can start over again. You can start with a clean heart before God. God can forgive you and keep, get you clean. But the, it, this, at some point, you gotta make a decision. Am I gonna live for God or am I gonna live for my flesh? So I said, I wanna pray with you, and we prayed over her, we gave her a ring and all this kind of stuff. She lost the ring within a week, we had to give her another ring. But, but I said, will you agree that you will not marry somebody that your parents don't approve of, because we have some discernment and godly discernment, and you need your parents to be a part of that, and that you'll stay clear and, and pure before God until the day you get married? I said, because if you do that, if you enter into a covenant relationship with your husband and you've never had sex with somebody, that relationship has far, you'll probably never have any problems of unfaithfulness in that marriage because you don't know anybody else. You have no seed inside of you from something else. And she said, I promise. She went through several years. She was now 28 years old, not married. She had four boyfriends. We had prayed all four of them out. And, and she, <laughs> she, she kept her word to us. She finally met the guy she was gonna get married to. She got married at 28 to, her, to a, a man who was also a virgin, both of them virgins. And when I look back on that, of all the accomplishments in my life, that's probably one of my greatest accomplishments is just seeing my child grow up like that and live for God. Now, in the process of living like that, she was mocked, she was made fun of, she had all kinds of people putting pressure on her, persecuted for righteousness sake. Are you following me? But she endured it. Now, when you endure through that, how many of you understand, there is a reward for that? A godly marriage that lasts forever. I now have three beautiful grandchildren that will grow up without that generational curse of sexual permissiveness in, her, in their family line. Come on, Jesus. I love that. Now, I'm in college uh, one, one day, and we, go, we decide to go to Atlanta uh, from Athens, and we're with a bunch of friends, and we're going out, and we're having a party. And I, you, you all heard my story. I was a bad guy. I was a really bad guy. And there was no shortage of sin in my life. And so we, we're out one night. We're going to go to this bar that's full of sin, what, what the Bible calls debauchery. And we're going to go there. And, and as we're walking across the street, downtown Atlanta, getting ready to go to this bar, one of my friends stops and says, I'm not going. And, and this is one of our good friends who I'd had plenty of seen plenty of sin in and, 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 and him do stuff. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, I can't go. He said, a few days ago, I had an experience with God. I've surrendered my life to Jesus. I can't go to those places anymore. Now, this is a good word for some of you single people that are still going to those places. I said, you can't go to those places anymore. He said, no. I said, why? He says, because I'm now I'm a Christian. And I, I'm, I'm being honest with you, I mocked him. I just mocked him, I made fun of him, I laughed at him, our friends were laughing at him, we just really made him feel bad. And he walked away, and he didn't go, he walked away, and we just laughed and made a joke about him the rest of the night, and went and did our debauchery, and went into this bar and had a big party. And now, fast forward two years later, I get saved. As I'm getting saved, I'm thinking through all my experiences with people that, that marked me, that, that, that challenged me, and I get a phone call from this guy. And this guy says, hey, I'm coming up to New York. I was living up in New York. I'm coming up to New York to go to this Simon and Garfunkel concert that's outdoors at Central Park. Would you like to go? I said, absolutely. 
And I said, Herschel, you'll never believe. You'll never believe this. I don't think you'll ever believe this. But I gave my life to Jesus too. I'm saved. And I, and I, did, and I said, Herschel, one of the reasons I gave my life to Jesus is because of you. It's because when you stood your ground and held on to your, to, to your purity and, and said, I'm gonna live a righteous life, I'd never seen that before. I've never seen a person who was really like me and now changed like that. And I said, it was such a witness. Now, in the moment, it made me mock you, persecute you, and I, I'm really sorry for that. But I just want you to know that you're part of the reason that I'm in the kingdom of God. Now, he would go on and become the singles pastor at Perimeter Church. I would be the pastor at Victory here. And when we ever get together from time to time, we just laugh. We just, can you believe what God did with us from the good old University of Georgia? Come on, Jesus. God can do anything with anybody if you'll surrender your life to Jesus. Amen? You're going to face persecution. You'll face it at, with your coworkers. You'll face it even in marriage. If you're married and suddenly, now this is a big problem right now with COVID. COVID created all kinds of marital problems because a lot of people got out of church and sometimes one of the persons in, that was in the, in the marriage decided they didn't want to go back to church. And we have a lot of marriages, even in our church. I, after each service this morning, I've had people come up to me. Oh, yeah, my marriage, my husband, this, my husband, that, won't go to church anymore. And I said, when you're unequally yoked, where you're serving God and your spouse is not, how many of you know there is persecution in that marriage? And everybody that's married to an unequally yoked person, you know what I'm talking about. You have to live out daily that persecution. Now, remember what he says. Rejoice and be glad. Because your reward is in heaven. Your reward is in heaven. And the reality of life is, no matter who you are or what you do, you're going to have people persecute you for your faith. And when they persecute you, they're persecuting you. Why? Listen to me. Because you're different. You're different. Now, this is important because being different is not what you think it is. A lot of people today, well, I'm different. Look at this cool tattoo. Look how different I am. You're not cool. That cool tattoo doesn't make you different. Everybody's got a cool tattoo. In fact, what makes you different as a young person is not having a tattoo. Because everybody gets one now. Everybody, as soon as they're old enough, they get a tattoo. And they think, that's cool. Look how cool I am. Look at my expressions and all that. And the reality is, is you just look like everybody else. Everybody else. And, 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 you know, there was a time back in the day, I'm an old guy, so there was a time back in the day where we used to just wear regular jeans. Y'all remember that? They were kind of baggy a little bit. They were a little loose at the bottom, and they kind of made you look a little frumpy, a little dumpy. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking about? And then, then there came a season where they got a little bit wider. Remember that? The wide, the wide pants. We walk around looking two times bigger than we were, and we thought that was cool. Then we came down to skinny jeans, and now everybody wears skinny pants, skinny jeans, tights, whatever you want to call them, pajamas. They wear stuff out that shouldn't be worn out sometimes. I see people in the airport, did you even look at yourself before you walked out the door? <laughs> you forgot to put your pants on. <laughs> That's your underwear. <laughs> Lord, help us. And we think we're doing that because we're different. No, I'm not talking about that kind of different. I'm talking about you're different because you're living righteously. You're living for righteous sake. And when you live for righteous sake, listen, initially, it'll create persecution, but it's a witness. It's not a witness to, 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 to just be you know, preaching at people, angry at people, frustrated at people, criticizing people. What's a witness is when you live righteously. And what happens is when you live righteously, then you become a person that's a target sometimes for a season. That's why Jesus said this in Luke chapter six. He said in verse 26, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how the, their ancestors treated the false prophets. In other words, if everybody's speaking well of you, if everybody likes you, then what you've created is an algorithm life. You know what an algorithm life is? If you go on social media, you'll learn that there's an algorithm in social media that eventually weeds out all the people that are not like you and just puts people around you that think like you do. 
They become your friends. If you say, I have 5,000 friends, and when you post, not all 5,000 of those people see your post. Only the people in your algorithm see that post, and they're the ones that normally agree with you and feed you back into your ego. You're right. What you said is right. And, and they'll just re rehearse what you just said. And every once in a while, somebody will break through your algorithm that's not in your normal algorithm and criticize you. And you know what we do now when somebody does that? We cancel them. It, you can't speak anymore. We erase what they said. We don't want anybody thinking anybody disagrees with us. We only want people to say things that seem to agree with us. If that's you, if that's how you think and that's how you live, then you're missing the point of what persecution is. Persecution is when not everybody speaks well of you. It's when people say things about you that you know are not true, and they're saying it because they're angry at your righteousness. You make them feel uncomfortable. Did you see what I just said? They make them feel uncomfortable. And it says, when that happens, rejoice and be glad. You've got to learn how to be a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. You can't live your life to please man. If you're so insecure that people say something bad, it just wounds you and damages you and hurts you and inflicts all these emotional things inside of you, then what you've got to do is fully surrender to Jesus. When you fully surrender to Jesus, life is no longer about you. When you're all caught up in how people feel about you, it's because life is about you. It's all about you. Look at me. Listen to what I've done. Look where I'm going. See how I feel today. Let me share my emotions today. Let me tell you what happened to me today. We don't care. <laughs> and I know that makes you feel bad. But I'll tell you who does care. Jesus. And the more we surrender to Jesus, life is not about us. Life is now about bringing people to Christ, dying to self, bringing glory to God in the life that we live. And with that comes persecution. Finally, in this last verse, and I'll read it and we'll go home. Jesus closes this, this down in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then in the same context, he makes this statement. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? How are you the salt of the earth? You are living a righteous life. You are living a righteous life. When you're living a righteous life, you are the salt of the earth. If you lose your saltiness, then you're, and you, he says, you're no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light in a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give it, gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. All right, so let me just wrap this up. This is what it looks like to be a true Christian. When you're living a righteous life, when you're walking in righteousness, you will be persecuted. But because of persecution, he says, rejoice and be glad. Just know that when you're being persecuted for righteousness, you're looking like me. You're being like me, which is different than the world. You're going to face that, but it's creating salt and it's creating light. So that everywhere you walk, into your family, into your neighborhood, into your workplace, wherever you go, you shine, you shine, and that spirit of light shines through you to a dark world. Now, darkness doesn't like it. Darkness is repelled it by initially, but eventually people come to the light instead of run from the light. And what you're trying to do is draw people to Jesus, not repel them because of your personality. Amen? And the more you're like Jesus, how many of you understand, there is a certain group of people in the earth, whoever they are, that respond to Jesus. You're not responsible for leading everybody to the Lord, just the ones who will come to the Lord. And there are people right now, right now, in your family, <laughs> in your workplace, in your job, in your school, in your neighborhood, there are people right now 
that are waiting on you. They're just waiting on you. They don't know they're waiting on you, but they are. And this week, this week, right before we come to Easter, is the season of ripeness. It's the season of harvest. And if you will just go and take the, 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 the righteousness of God that's inside of you and start to be around them, love them, care for them, be a light to them, you will find that there will be a certain one or two or three or four that will come with you into the light. And this week, this time next Sunday, they're going to answer the altar call, give their heart to Jesus, and you're going to be right there alongside of them, welcome them into the kingdom of God in Jesus' name. Yes, Lord. Yes. How many of you want to bring somebody to Christ this week? I want you to, I want everybody in this room, I want everybody at Midtown, I want everybody at North Cobb, everybody at Hamilton Mill, I want this week to be there, this is your week of harvest. There's nothing more important than bringing somebody to Christ. It's the only number that counts. I want you to stand to your feet all across the campuses, all across every campus. I want you to just close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to think about who you're who you gonna bring next weekend. Who are you gonna bring? You might already lead them to Christ before they ever come to church, but who are you gonna bring? Lord, we wanna see three. The Bible says in the first outpouring, there were 3,000 souls added to the kingdom of heaven. I believe that same number can happen at Victory this next weekend. So Lord, I'm praying for you to put certain people in our hearts this weekend. I'm praying for that right now in Jesus' name. Praying for you to strengthen us so that we're not fragile in our emotions when somebody persecutes us for sharing Jesus with them. And Lord, I'm praying this weekend that you're gonna put a divine connection in each of our lives that each one of us will come in contact with that we can bring to church, we can bring to the Lord and see the wonder miracle of a born again spirit. I pray that next weekend we're gonna see more people come to Christ than we've ever seen in the history of our church. Pray there's gonna be a fresh anointing on the services, on each one of the services, all the musicians, the singers, the preaching, everything. And God, most of all, I pray that we'll bring glory to your name, Jesus. We just lift up your name, Jesus. That we'll bring glory to your name. Lord, let all these beatitudes that we've been talking about over the last several weeks, let them be a part of who we are. Not just some scripture that we read, but something of who we are. We're meek and lowly, that we're poor in spirit, that we're merciful, that we're teachable, that we're, that we're righteous, we're, we're living for you, God. I pray that over our church. I pray that over all of our campuses. And we just give you glory for all that you're about to do in and through us in this week to come. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen and amen. God bless you.